What is going on, one-week season fam? JM to win here. It is 425 in the AM on Saturday morning, week seven. Welcome to the week seven OWS chat pod. Let's hang out for a bit. Uh, I think I said a couple weeks ago that we would start getting back to Saturday evening posting of the chat pod. That is still in the plans due to some schedule situations this afternoon. I wasn't certain that I would be able to get this up on time. It might have been going up about 6 or 6.30 on the West Coast had I tried to record it in the afternoon. So I finished the player grid a little bit ago, just got it posted, just got the NFL Edge audio posted and decided to stay up and do the chat pod. So we're going to dive in. It looks like Aaron or Dustin probably posted on the One Week Season Twitter this week uh, telling you guys to get questions in because we got a lot of questions in this week, including a a lot on um, the 20th and 21st and 22nd. So Typically, we have four to seven questions that come in, and we're able to dive kind of deep into each of them. This week, we have more like, I don't know, eyeballing it, I'd say 15 questions. So we don't want to be going for an hour and 45 minutes, two hours, two and a half hours, although I think we've gone over two hours before in the chat pod, Um, but... Uh, I'll try to keep things kind of tight this week, and um, if I don't get as in-depth on your question as you'd like, I apologize, but uh, we also want to make sure we get to everything, so I'll kind of pick my spots here this week. But yeah, let's not not spend any more time chit-chatting. If you're here, you have probably been here before. It's unlikely that you're picking up the chat pod for the first time at this point in the season. As always, keep in mind that the chat pod, we focus primarily on training stuff, stuff that's not necessarily specific to that week's slate, which also means that all past OWS chat pods are about 80% full of information that's still relevant to you right now. If you're listening to this in 2021, 2022, the stuff from 2019, 2018 is still relevant to you right now, so... Be sure to dive into past chat pods. Definitely one of the best ways to improve your DFS play as part of your subscription. This is where we get to talk about a lot of the things that you guys are wondering about and kind of dive into some of the ins and outs of of DFS as a strategy game. So first question came from Jeff who said, when doing a game stack, how many roster spots do you use? Four to six, question mark. For the rest of the roster, do you take other correlated pieces from another game, like a running back, defense special teams, or just fill the roster with great raw points or value pieces? Correlate everything, question mark. Obviously, I say this (laughs) a lot, but it depends on the situation. So on the recap pod this last week, um, which I recommend listening to, if you're listening to this chat pod in the future, this would be the DFS recap pod with with myself and Scott Barrett and Graham Barfield 
from week six. So you should be able to find that in the Edge Plus drop-down menu as well, week six, 2020. It was a really strong recap pod. And actually, I imagine most of them will be pretty strong moving forward because we were kind of, this is our first year doing that podcast. And we were kind of feeling out what our vibe is. And we started realizing that, okay, focusing on this DFS strategy stuff is really valuable on a, on a Monday when we record Tuesday, Wednesday, when most of you are listening to that podcast. And one of the things that I was talking about on there this week is these teams with a broad distribution of touches or a narrow distribution of touches. And, and, you know, there are, or, or teams that like the Ravens, the Ravens in 2019, 2020, if they're way out in front in a game, they're still going to keep trying to score points until there's about 10 minutes left in the game. And so you don't need Lamar Jackson to have an opponent on the other side of the game who can keep the score close in order for him to post a tourney winning score. There are stacks like that as well. Think about the Patriots in 2007. Uh, the Patriots had another year like that uh, after the deflate gate stuff where they just decide that they're going to keep their foot on the gas and keep scoring points regardless of what's going on in the game. The Bills have been a little bit like that this year in 2020, especially early in the season, where there are situations where you can stack an offense and you don't even need pieces from the other side. In fact, where people just kind of auto bring back pieces from the other side, they're putting themselves at a disadvantage because you might have this concentrated offense that you expect to do really well. And so you can take three pieces from this one offense, but then on the other side, there might be an offense that spreads the wealth or an offense that gives touchdowns to different players than the ones who get them down into the red zone, uh, or just an offense that from a price perspective, we run run into this a lot where these high total teams with high priced players garner a lot of ownership but those high-priced players are priced for the fact that they're always in high-scoring games. So those are also situations where, like like the Chiefs, just because, let's say, before the Chiefs had this great pass defense, just because you were taking like a cheaper piece against the Chiefs or a cheaper offense against the Chiefs, saying, well, they're going to have to score points, they're going to have to keep pace, didn't necessarily mean that you wanted a Chiefs piece on the other side. You might bring back Kelsey and get 17 points at 7K or bring back Hill and get 21 points at, you know, there were times when he was 7,700. And yeah, you're just not, you're not, or the Saints is another good example with Michael Thomas and Kamara. You're just not getting the score that you need on the other side of that game. And so, yeah, everything is just so different. If you're building around an offense because it's narrowly distributed and the pieces are too cheap, the Cowboys early this year were a great example of that, where you had this, you know, all they were passing so much, playing so fast, and then all the passes were going to these three guys, uh, or almost all the passes were going to these three guys in Amari and CD and Gallup. In a situation like that, you're stacking for a different reason. Then there are those stacks. This week is a good example, week week 7, 2020, like Packers and Texans. Those are two of the top quarterbacks, two below average pass defenses, two teams that like to attack deep, two defenses that are bad or have been bad at defending deep. And so you're looking at a game environment where you say, I just think there's going to be a lot of points scored in this game environment, so I want to mix and match pieces. So every every situation 
is a little bit different. So sometimes your stack's going to be two on one side, none on the other. Sometimes three on one side, none on the other. Three on one side, one on the other. Three on one side, two on the other. There's all different ways that it can play out based on the reason why you're stacking and how these two teams match up. And I would just, I always try to get down to raw points. I always try to get down to how many yards are going to be produced in this game. How broadly are these yards and touches and catches going to be spread out? How certain is it that these core pieces are going to get the touchdowns? Because you're wanting to give yourself an opportunity to get a lot of things right at once. But with that, that means that you don't want pieces who just aren't going to be part of of that of things going right. You know, like let's say that you end up with an offense that spreads the ball out to 10 different guys, nine different guys each game, and you're having to kind of guess on which one guy is going to hit. That doesn't really help you having that guy as part of your your stack when you can find more certainty in another spot. Just because the one offense is going off doesn't mean that the other side is necessarily producing a top DFS score from an individual player or from a player that you can isolate and target with any level of comfort. So kind of think through all those elements and talking about this, we're obviously on the right track as far as saying, how do we get a lot of things right at once? But yeah, there's just, uh, there's always going to be nuance to it. As to the other spots on the roster, it kind of depends. One of the things that I'm always looking for in those final spots on the roster are pieces that can carry me to the top of the slate. So it's, you know, these pieces that could have 30-point upside. So they might have nothing to do with the rest of my roster, and they're just a kind of lower-owned piece with a lot of upside. Um, There are other times where, like, I built a roster today messing around with things that was like... uh, Teddy Bridgewater, so the the Panthers and Saints are playing this week, if you're listening to this down the road. Uh, Teddy Bridgewater and Robbie Anderson and DJ Moore and a couple pieces from the Saints and then like Stefan Diggs and Brashad Perriman with the Jets and Bills playing. And so, you know, there are ways to do things like that where I think I had five pieces from the Saints and Panthers game on this roster that I was messing around with and then two pieces from this other game that were correlated And so, yeah, I mean, if you can get correlated pieces, that's good because then you say, okay, now I'm down to like three things I need to get right on this roster. If if I've correlated two different spots and that's like seven or even eight of my roster spots, you're giving yourself fewer things that you need to get right. But I wouldn't force it. I wouldn't set it as a rule like these other spots have to be correlated. It kind of just depends on how the slate shapes up. So uh, the way that I there's no way that we're getting to all these questions or at least not um not in the time that I'll be aiming for um but the way that I I like to go through the NFL edge is I do all the research write the NFL edge when I go through and read it I sort things these days I sort things into the categories that I use for the player grid so I've already written down like blue chip light blue build arounds bonuses, bottom-up, angles. Uh, And then I also keep a list of like 30-plus guys who I think can just get 30-plus points kind of independent of their game environment, their matchup, whatever. So like this week, somebody like DJ Chark, who's 5,500 against the Chargers. And you're not going to – there's nothing in the research that's going to lead you to isolate DJ Chark and say, oh, he's a great play this week. But – when you, you know, kind of finish all your research and then go game by game and say, okay, who's left? Who could get 
30 plus points. In some weeks, it's like six, seven, eight guys on my list there. Some weeks, it's two or three that kind of haven't made my list yet. Um, so when I'm going through the NFL edge, I'm sorting with a very clear set of instructions for myself. You want to know what you're looking for. So if I come out one week and there's like one or two blue chip pieces, but like four build around spots that I really like, and I feel certain about those build around spots, then I kind of am going to start my roster from those build around spots and then bring in the blue chip pieces throughout those rosters and and then kind of mix and match a bunch of upside pieces. And then other weeks like this week, I, I have a very narrow core at running back, but a broad core from passing stacks. And so I will have kind of this, I'll bet on a running back core across a bunch of my rosters as if I'm just putting in, you know, one roster that's saying I'm going all in on these running backs. Not quite like that, but, you know, it's going to be very narrow, the running backs that I'm hitting. But then I'll go a little bit broader at, uh, you know, passing stacks. And and then because I'm going broader at passing stacks, there will be fewer places for me to just throw in these 30-point guys. It all works out because my, my list this week has like two guys who aren't, uh, popping in other spots on that that 30 plus point list it's um dj chark and tyreek hill um but yeah so it's it's all about the week and i think you need a structure of what you're how you're getting your player pool so that then you can see okay how does this week line up for me and i think it's interesting I actually, just before I started recording the chat pod, I was reading Sonic's Above the Field article where this week he dives into Ricky D's Monday night Millie Maker win, but also Ricky D's like really bad Sunday Millie Maker slate where he had only three of his 150 rosters that cashed. And what Sonic was diving into was how Ricky D's approach is to basically just bet really heavily on one spot or one set of beliefs for the slate. So it's almost like, you know, it's three grand in in entry fees to max enter the Millie Maker. Now, obviously, a player like Ricky D is also, you know, putting in tons of entries in the in the Wildcat, which is 333 a piece. Like a 3K buy-in isn't a huge deal to him. But he treats that 3K almost like one roster. In other words, like, and again, it's easier to do that if you're used to playing in the 3K tournament where you're only putting in one roster. Um, or, you know, I think that you can put up to eight in the 3K tournament. So if you're max entering that, you're putting in 24K. It's easier to say, okay, on the Millie Maker, I'm going to treat this like it's a single $3,000 entry. And I'm going to build all of these rosters around this like one spot or these few spots. Um, or this one spot within like, you know, mixing and matching in this other way. But that's his style of play. And I was thinking about that and thinking about how how clearly defined my mini multi-entry approach has started to become for me as I've, you know, been playing that way for a little over a year now and, and kind of refining it, developing it, and then settling into a groove of, of the way I like to play it to where I'm going to get my player pool. I'm then going to figure out where the most certainty is for me. I'm then going to figure out how I want to layer that certainty across my 19 rosters. Then I'm going to see what's left. I'm going to, you know, if that certainty is at running back, then I'll start kind of filling in my stacks from there. If that certainty is at my 
the stacks that I'm targeting, the passing attacks that I'm tar targeting, then I'll start filling in the running backs from there. And then again, I said this on the angles pod this week, but usually I'll have, you know, three, four spots left, sometimes two spots left per roster, or I guess two to four per roster. And then I go through and I start filling in those final spots, whether it's like, you know, some little mini correlations or whether it's just some upside pieces. And so again, it's like, that's become my style of play to where each week I go in with sort of a game plan, knowing what I'm looking for. I don't have to start from scratch each week. I don't have to decide each week how I'm going to play. I just have to dis like I just have to then go in and, and research the slate and discern how the week sets up for my style of play. And I think that that's valuable to start understanding what you're doing, how you want to attack a slate, um, what tournaments you're going to be in, because over time you can then develop a style that fits what you're wanting to accomplish. We always say you, you need a goal. You have to actually be thinking about first place. You have to know what the payout is for first place, what the payout is for second, third, fourth, fifth place, so that you have a, a clear sense of like, oh, I really do need to target first place. And you have to think about how you're going to get to first place. But from there, there's all sorts of unique ways to try to get to first place. And you have to just develop, you have to think consciously about it. You have to be intentional about it. You have to kind of map out your thoughts and keep refining it until you've settled into, into a groove where it's like, okay, this is what I'm doing. I'm seeing that I'm constantly putting myself in position for first place. And then from there, you just, you know, you ride that strategy and you let each week sort of dictate the exact way it plays out. But, um, but yeah, that got a, a little bit deeper into that than the, just the question itself. But, um, it's, it's a thing of like one week, you know, each week is going to be its own individual unit. Each week is its own puzzle to solve. But if you start out knowing your sort of brand for trying to solve that puzzle, that helps out quite a bit because it eliminates a lot of the extra work and, and lets you kind of start out with your mental energy poured where it needs to be poured each week instead of each week each week trying to figure out like from scratch what your style of play is and how you're going to attack that site. So that'll help quite a bit as well is just keeping that in mind. Next question is from old friend Greg Heller. OWS for Life member Greg Heller. Uh, I'm going to read this whole question rather than trying to paraphrase it. But he said, I continue to struggle with taking some risk, educated risk, of course. Week six was a perfect example. I liked the Vikings game environment. I had more Thielen than Jefferson. Of course, hindsight is 2020, but wasn't Jefferson the type of play we talk about at OWS? Very focused offense. Explosive player coming into his own will cost more in a few weeks likely to be half the ownership of Thielen. This reminded me exactly of the Vikings-Eagles game last year or the year before, where after reading The Edge, I loved Diggs. He crushed and Thielen was okay. This was uh, last year. I think, in fact, it was like week six or seven. Maybe it was two years ago. No, yeah, it was last year, like week six or seven. Anyhow, I remember thinking about that game as I was like putting William down in his crib um, because I, Greg, I did the same thing as you and ended up heavier on Thielen than I should have. Um, Diggs crushed, Thielen was okay. Even then, I backed off a little over fear of being wrong. It was still my one and only big weekend of DFS, but it's the last time I can recall really finding something I liked 
that was off the mainstream? Is it just as simple as doing what I'm talking about here? Look at each game environment I like and see if there's a likelihood that the yards and scoring come from the less obvious options. Last week's chat pod, you talked about reassessing what you're doing, and if it's not working, try... uh, Yeah, last week. Oh, I thought that was last year. Anyhow, um, last week's chat pod, you talked about reassessing what you're doing. And if it's not working, try taking more risk. Maybe I'm answering my own question, but I always like to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, that embracing of uncertainty is big, but it's not just, it's not like as scientific as, it's not always going to be Justin Jefferson. It's not always going to be Stefan Diggs last year, where it's a player that in retrospect you can say, yeah, like through through the research, that was very clearly a guy who could have gone off. But sometimes it's also saying like, I mean, it depends on the, on the if you're single entry or three entry or um, mini multi-entry or mass multi-entry, but even, even single entry and three entry max, there's an element of just, of sometimes firing a shot on a player we were in the contributor channel uh, on Discord today, and I was talking about um, Sam Darnold and considering playing Sam Darnold this week against the Bills. And somebody was um, explaining to me why Sam Darnold was a, a bad play from the statistics. And it was like, I'm not, I'm not worried about if Sam Darnold is a bad play from the statistics. Of course, he's a bad play from the statistics. What I'm thinking about is that in, I think it's like five of his last 19 games, he's gone for four and a half X or higher his salary. So why he looks like such a bad play is because when he misses, he misses so hard. But he's gone four and a half X his salary in five of his last 19 games. He's gone over five X in three of his last 19 games. He's playing the Bills, who are uh, totally banged up and have not been great on on defense this year. I probably won't actually end up with Darnold on one of my 19 rosters. But while we were having this conversation, what I said was, you know, there's there's an element of shutting off that logical side of your brain. And my one of my best weekends, or I, I guess my best weekend in 2015 was... Um, everyone was saying that Calvin Johnson was completely washed up and it was a Bears-Lions game with an over-under of like 42 or 43. I got on the Friday night show and talked up how much I liked Stafford and Calvin Johnson and Levitan told me how washed up Calvin Johnson was, uh, talked about how low that game total was. I said that that game total was wrong. The uh, Calvin Johnson was like 2% owned he was like 6,600. It was like the cheapest he'd been in ages. And that game, I mean, it went into overtime, which always helps, but it was like a 31 to 37 shootout. Um, I finished 12th in the Millie Maker, you know, won a bunch of other tournaments. And another week, I think it was 2000, might have been 2016. One of my biggest weekends of 2016, or maybe it was my second biggest weekend of 2015. I had Chris Ivory, who was like, overpriced. He was in the high 5k or low 6k range. We know that he didn't have a pass game role back then. And he ended up catching like five or six passes that game kind of randomly and scoring three touchdowns and posting this huge game. And uh, 2015 as well, I had a big weekend with 
Sammy Watkins when he was still on the Bills, and I forget who the cornerback matchup had been, but we were in New York at the DFS Players Conference, and uh, Silva and I were talking about DFS, and so I was talking about that roster, and he was like, how did you play Sammy Watkins against whoever the, the cornerback was? And it was like, that's not like, there's a point where you have to get past that. There's a point where you have to say, can I, can this guy win me a tournament? There has to be a willingness to play those plays. And you got to keep in mind back then, I was a single entry player. So the week of the um, the Stafford, Calvin Johnson, Jay Cutler, Alshon Jeffrey game, uh, that week I ended up putting in like, I think 12 rosters and kind of put them into a lot of lower dollar stuff and qualifiers and whatnot, just because I really liked the bead that I had on on that game. But again, it was like my main roster where 80% of my money was was on that game. The Chris Ivory week, I had one roster, if I remember correctly, and it was, you know, had Chris Ivy, Ivory on it. The Sammy Watkins week, I had one roster and had Sammy Watkins on it. And there's there has to be a willingness to, on on a couple spots in your roster, take that risk. And I think that the thinking that what I've always tried to remind myself if I get into a rut where I see, it's almost like if I'm cashing too often, but cashing outside the top 10%, I I ask myself if I'm playing things too safely because you it, it gets scary to take the risk. And then you have to say, well, the other stuff isn't getting me first place anyway. Playing things safely and and avoiding this risk isn't getting me to first place anyway. The hardest thing about NFL is that you have to wait a week for the next slate. If this were MLB or NBA, it would be so much easier to say, screw it. Like I'm going to just embrace some risk tonight and say, if I lose, I lose. The Ricky D roster that Sonic was exploring that, that, uh, only three out of 150 cash in the Millie Maker. It was, uh, I think he said what Sonic laid out was that Ricky D had like 33% Baker Mayfield and 67% Ben Roethlisberger in the Steelers versus Browns game, or maybe it was 39% and 61%, something like that, on a game that nobody else was stacking, where if you look at it logically, it's like, the st- there's no way that Baker was going to have a good game because of the way he operates under pressure and the way that the Steelers can generate pressure. And that's probably somewhat an element of, you know, a lot of these guys are very Vegas lines focused. And we talked last week about how that Vegas line was high. And then I kind of called the, that, that line a joke and um, talked about the reasons why that game was not going to become a shootout. But if you're willing to say, you know, if you're somebody, a Cubs fan does it too all the time. It's like games that I wouldn't be on and Cubs fan is on them. And when they miss, it's like, why? Like, I, when they miss, I often think, man, if you guys could take the like deep knowledge that's available and then apply it to your willingness to like embrace risk so that then you could find these few spots that, that you're like, okay, yeah, this, this looks like a good spot, but it's actually a spot to avoid. Then you, they'd make so much more money. But the truth is, maybe that's not even necessary, right? Like they need to be able to just not think about the fact that this is potentially a bad spot because that's kind of the key is everybody thinks it's a bad spot. 
um, Beep I'm a Jeep in 2016, 2017, uh, at a live final. He had a huge weekend with Ben Roethlisberger against the Broncos, and that was when the Broncos still had that great defense in Denver. And Roethlisberger went for like four or five touchdown passes. And I talked about uh, his roster the next week because it was it was it was just it was like a high total game, but because it was at Broncos, nobody was going to be on it. And so there's a certain type of large field player, like qualifier winning large field player, that they don't worry about getting it wrong. They don't care about getting it wrong because you're going to get it wrong most weeks anyway, even when you're playing things safe. What they want to do is take some shots at those spots that everybody's avoiding, even though the game total says jump on this spot. So this week, there's going to be a few sharp players who have a lot of exposure to Tennessee against Pittsburgh, for example, because that has a game total of 52. Steelers are implied for 27. Titans are implied for 25. And everybody's going to look at it and say, well, we'll stay away from the spot because it's the Steelers defense. But and you're not if you're not playing mass multi-entry, you don't have to go that far. But my point is that there's that that's part of the mindset that's necessary for succeeding in tournaments. That was another example I brought up uh, the Wildcat win I had last year. Like Leonard Fournette was a bad play on paper. Leonard Fournette has since been cut by that team and is a backup on his new team. And he was the separator for me that week. He was the reason why. I finished in first place instead of finishing in 20th place. You know, he was the reason why I picked up 200K instead of, I don't know what 20th place was, like probably 6K or 5K, something like that. So yeah, it's, it's, it's challenging, but it's just, it's, it's most challenging because if you're wrong, you have to wait a whole week to try it again. Again, if it were baseball and you could be like, you know what, I'm going to stack this good offense against this really good pitcher and just say, Maybe the pitcher leaves in the sixth inning and this offense goes to work against the bullpen. Or maybe this pitcher has a bad outing and this offense puts up 10, 12 runs. And then if you're wrong, you say, cool, like I'll come back the next day and try something else crazy. In football, we have this tendency to want to really maximize our weekend because we only get 17 of these weekends, soon to be 18 of these weekends. Um if you're playing showdowns, that helps a little bit with this mindset because then you can say, okay, I missed there. Let me hit the showdown slate tonight. Let me hit the showdown slate tomorrow night. Let me hit the showdown slate on Thursday night. Um, but yeah, you, it's just, it's, it's that like the, the way I always say it to myself is, well, what you're doing isn't working. You know, playing it safe isn't working. So I'd rather be wrong taking some shots than be wrong playing it safe and, um, yeah, the more you can embrace that mindset, the the better position you're going to put yourself in. I'll also say, like, you know, you you mentioned that one that one big DFS week, and I think Greg, you've been playing for a while, if memory serves. But you had one big weekend last year, and nothing since then. Well, it's been about 17 weekends since then. Like, that's not that crazy to go 17 weekends without a big weekend. We're we're heading into week seven. I haven't had a big weekend yet this this year. And I mean, that's because I'm playing top-heavy tournaments where if you don't get first place, you're probably not 
making much money or making any money. So, you know, you have to judge things also based on like, am I in position for first place? Am I, con- am I consistently in position for first place? So I've talked about that recently this year that I've had three out of six weeks where I've had one or more rosters that were, that had a clear shot at first place that were, you know, one or two plays away from that or one or two players, you know, on my roster being different away from that, you know, where it's like, okay, this guy was in my player pool. He just didn't end up on the right roster with these right pieces. And so there also has to be that, like assessing your play based, obviously not just on results, but on uh, what the process is proving out. So again, as always, a little bit deeper than um, we needed to go on that question, but that kind of covers a lot of the things that we need to cover there. Uh, This next question is from George Williams, who said that he's been messing around with the mini multi-entry approach uh, for the $9 slant on DraftKings. He said, I usually build 10 to 12 rosters using this approach. I noticed that the Wildcat and the Slant have much different contest sizes. The Wildcat's around 5,000 entries and the Slant's around 65,000 entries. Do you think the mini multi-entry strategy is viable for a contest such as the Slant? Uh, If not, do you have a low-stakes contest that you would recommend using this approach, or should I go back to the single-entry 3-max streets? You you can go back to the single-entry 3-max streets. Um, Obviously, there's nothing wrong with, with that either. I think that Finding, you know, if if time constraints or bankroll constraints have you choosing one or the other, I think the big thing is just choose one and stick with it. The mini multi-entry is, there's a lot of fun stuff that you can do with it in terms of how you can build that 10 to 12 block roster as if it's one giant roster. So that's something obviously that I talk about a lot, and I think there's a lot of cool stuff that you can apply there. If you're playing, if you decide to stick with the 10 to 12 rosters, if you're saying, you know what, I'd like to target first place in a big tournament, it's 50 grand to first place in the slant, which if you're playing 10 to 12 rosters, if you're investing, uh, you know, 90 to $108 in a weekend for a shot at 50 grand, that's excellent ROI. It's a good payout structure in that tournament because uh, if you cash, you're doubling your money. That's not the case in the Wildcat. In the Wildcat, if you cash, you're getting about a 50% return up until you finish in the top 10% of the tournament. So that's a really cool thing about the slant. The um, The score required for first place is going to be different in the slant, but not necessarily appreciably different. So honestly, like to me, as long as you're building to try to get first place, as long as you're building with first place in mind, either by the way that you're stacking games, the way that you're stacking offenses, the way that you're putting in player blocks, the way that you're grabbing upside pieces, if you're targeting first place, the mini multi-entry approach works in any of these tournaments. And so, uh, yeah, I would feel very comfortable playing the slant with 10 to 12 entries and the mini multi-entry approach, obviously with, you know, you do the math on it. I think that that's important to recognize what your expectations are. So for me, like doing the math on the wildcat with the number of entries that I put in, I think it's like all things being equal, I would 
uh, expect to finish first place like once every 17 seasons or once every 25 seasons or something like that. And so then you, you look to beat that pace. If you have 10 out of 65,000 rosters, your pace is going to be you know, even more extreme than that. And that doesn't mean that you can't beat that pace by a very large margin, but you, you should know like what percentage of the rosters in that tournament you have. And that gives you a sense of like what your standing is there. But still, if you're building the right way, if you're building toward, I, I say building toward first place, but there's also an element of just saying like, how do I maximize points on my roster? Uh, it's that rocket ship mentality we talk about of saying, if you don't look at the competition, you only think about improving yourself. If you don't look at the competition in a tournament, you only think about how to maximize points on your roster. You're still looking to get those 240, 250 point scores, and that's going to win you a tournament regardless of where you are. And so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I would feel very comfortable going that that route as long as you're going about things the right way. Uh, I'm actually going to swing this into the next question, which came from Isaac Roach, Roca. I don't know. Uh, but he said, if I'm joining a bunch of single entry tournaments, 50 to 100 players for $5 to $10 each, should I build one lineup and put it in all of them? I think that there's, and I think I saw a conversation about this on discord or maybe it was on Twitter. There is a strategy available where you build your 10 to 12 rosters and they're not they're not 10 to 12 random rosters right they're 10 to 12 rosters that work together as a roster block that allows you to play different angles of a stack on an offense and allows you to mix and match things in different ways create some hedge bets and then enter those rosters into single entry tournaments. So then you could say, I've got 10 rosters. So I'm going to enter it into each one into a different single entry tournament. What's interesting about that approach is you get to compete with smaller fields. Obviously, you're no longer competing against 65,000 people, but you're also competing against people who have built their rosters for single entry. And what that means is these are people who are taking their optimal roster, their roster that they've crafted throughout the week, their roster that's going to have largely the chalkiest plays. Not everybody's going to be approaching things that way, but it's harder for single entry players to pull the trigger on a stack because single entry players, they've gotten used to having this one roster. So they want the roster to do well. They don't want to spend all week building this one roster, this one roster bombs, and that's their weekend. So because of that, they end up hedging on this one roster. They don't, they don't take a three-man stack and bring it back with two pieces from the other side because if that one thing misses, their whole roster misses. So they treat it a little bit more like cash games. That's how a lot of single-entry players play. So if you can then say... You know, we're always looking for edges in DFS. If you can then say, I'm going to put 10 rosters into 10 different single entry tournaments. Yes, 
a few of those rosters are going to do poorly. But as we talk about frequently on the site, if you can if you can play things in a way that those rosters doing poorly guarantees that these other rosters are in good shape. So a great example was for me in week six, where I was heavy on the Vikings. I had Vikings on all 19 of my builds. And the thinking was that most weeks, two of these guys were going to hit together. So I wanted a lot of double Vikings. But also, if two of them weren't hitting, that almost certainly meant that one of them was having a huge game. And what we ended up seeing last week was that Thielen missed and Madison missed, but Jefferson had a 40-point game. And so my Thielen and Madison roster, Thielen didn't bomb. Like, he didn't kill your roster. At his price, you he didn't get what you needed. But uh, you could still have won a tournament with Thielen. You could not have won a tournament with Madison. But once those guys bombed, yeah, that sucks for the rosters that they were on. But that guarantee that my, whatever it was, 4 out of 19 or 5 out of 19 Jefferson solo rosters we're all doing really well. And so if you can if you can do that in single entry, you can actually end up on those players that other single entry players aren't ending up on. And the reason you're ending up on them is because you're not actually firing a single bullet. You're firing, uh, you know, 10 bullets in 10 different single entries. And so, uh, yeah, that's kind of an interesting way to look at things in a way that I would consider kind of messing around with this. If you're wanting to get into smaller tournament fields, but play a mini multi-entry approach, think about building your your block of rosters and then throwing those rosters into single entry tournaments and uh, kind of gaining an edge on the field in that way. I think it's a really sharp way to approach tournament play. Another question that kind of ties into this is from Aaron Jordan. He asked, uh, I've listened to you talk a lot about not just knowing who the good plays are and not just trying to put the optimum lineup together. So I have a two-part question. Is single-entry, three-entry max still an effective approach to learning good roster construction and bankroll building? And two, is it good strategy to just try to target games and particular game environments you like and play those games from different angles with a more multi-entry approach to build bankroll? So for building bankroll the the smaller the tournament field the better you're not going to hit those 100x or 1000x payouts that are available in the millie maker or the slant or the wildcat or these different tournaments but you're also not you're not going to have a situation where it takes you 17 years or 25 years or 150 years before the math works in your favor. Again, we don't assume that all things are equal. We assume that we're building better rosters than the field and we can beat whatever those numbers are, but we still have to recognize what those numbers are, right? Like if you, if you're facing like a once in every 20 years shot, even if things are going really well, you're cutting down those odds to what, like once in every 15 years. And so, um, from a bankroll building standpoint, the that approach of like smaller field tournaments is going to be your best bet. Mini multi-entry is awesome for. Um, I mean, like I don't think, I don't think you're excluded from playing mini multi-entry if you have a smaller bankroll or if you're still bankroll building. I think it's just like a goals thing. So for me, I've never seen, I've never viewed 
DFS as like a slow growth um, type of activity. For me, it's all like like I've said before. Like I was I was chasing qualifiers from like the moment I started playing, just because that was what was attractive to me. And then I kind of developed. I developed my play based on the fact that that's what I was playing. Tournaments that were first place or nothing type of tournaments. In fact, in 2014, I didn't win a single NFL qualifier, and yet I was profitable in qualifiers. So if you've never played qualifiers, it's usually like if it's the ticket to first place is worth like 60000 it's going to be like 500 bucks to second place and like 200 bucks to third place. Like, and then nothing to like sixth place and seventh place because it's first place or nothing. It's this qualifier. And so you have to finish right below first place to even get any money back. And uh, I had gotten so used to targeting first place and it was before the DFS field was as sharp as it is now. But I had gotten so used to targeting first place that if I wasn't getting it, I was finishing right there next to it. And so, you know, if, if you can develop that style of play and you're able to say, you know what, like if I go through the season and lose my quote bankroll for the season, I'm okay with that because I know I'm targeting some big payouts. You don't have to go through the bankroll building phase. You know, if you have a job and you have some disposable income and you're able to say, you know what, I'm going to set aside 500 bucks for this season. And if I lose 500 bucks, no big deal. I'm going to set aside 300 bucks for this season, a thousand bucks for this season, whatever it might be. You don't have to go through the whole bankroll building phase if you want to attack different styles of tournaments. Again, we only have 17 weeks, so you want to maximize what you're doing. But if you're saying like, if you're a college student or if you have a family and you have, you know, minimal amounts of disposable income and you say like, look, I'm going to, I'm going to grow this bankroll. If that's the case, then I would be playing in smaller field tournaments. Single entry, three entry max is a great way to develop roster construction. You do want to be building around game environments at this point because there are enough people doing it that it's really hard to get first place without thinking about game environments. But that doesn't mean that there's some set of rules like you have to stack or you have to do this or that. It just means that you have to still think about first place even in these tournaments. And so, yeah, it's a good blend of like still balancing floor and ceiling while targeting first place. You know, look at somebody like Hilo who in 2019, single entry and three entry max had 80% profitable weekends because there are certain angles that you can play in single entry and three entry max that just you know, are sharper than what the field's going to be doing. It's going to help you build your bankroll. You can be profitable week in and week out so that even if you're not hitting, I shouldn't say week in and week out, but you know, you can be profitable throughout the season at a much higher rate than just that 20% clip of cashing. And so if you can do that, you don't even need to hit those first place finishes. It's better than cash games because you have a shot at hitting 3x, 4x, 5x on a given weekend. Um, And you know, if you can hit even six, seven, eight weekends out of the year, you're going to come out a lot better than you would in cash games hitting 10 weekends out of the year because a few of these weekends you're going to get a a big return. So absolutely, three entry max and single entry is still a great place for learning 
roster construction, for improving roster construction. I was actually thinking the other day, what I, what, one thing I want to do, um, you know, we've incorporated Hilo into the NFL Edge, added Lex to the NFL Edge. And part of the goal, it's not to like give me more free time, it's to give me more time to work on other things on the site that will also be valuable to subscribers. Um, try Essentially try to identify where I'm able to provide the most value and allocate my time to those places. So one thing that we want to do is set up like a three entry max contest for OWS members to where we enter like all of us who want to enter in there. And then I can do like a podcast at the front end of each week that breaks down my three entry max approach and then like a handful of other users who were in that contest, their three entry max approach. Unfortunately, there's not a way to set up a three entry max contest on DraftKings. Uh, so we would have to use one that's in the lobby. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to DraftKings and see if there's any way that they can work with us to uh, allow us to do that. And, and so hopefully we have something like that going soon. But yeah, I mean, three entry max is an excellent place to improve roster construction, improve your play. Um, and and yeah, just get you know better and better at what you're doing in DFS. Now I saw another question on Twitter that I'm not seeing in the uh, spreadsheet that uh, Dustin and Aaron pulled together for the the chat pod, but it was somebody had asked about me saying that I build um, that I'm doing mini multi entry essentially partly because I have less time. And they said it would seem like with less time, you would build fewer rosters and with more time, you would build more rosters. And I think that that's an important note to bring up as well. Uh, there's a quote from an author, and I, I don't remember who it was, but the gist of it was that they had said to somebody, this is like a long time ago, but they said, um, if I'd had more time, I would have written you a shorter letter because... It's, you know, like if I had double the time I have for the NFL edge, it would be 20% shorter because I go through, you know, like I'm writing it as I'm researching it. I'm walking through each game and learning about each game. If I had more time, I would then be able to take that information and condense it down to like its tightest possible form. More time wouldn't mean even more content. It would mean that the content that's in there gets kind of sharpened and tightened up into a tidier package. And it's the same thing with DFS play. Getting down to one roster, I only want to get down to one roster if I feel like I'm getting down to the best roster on the slate. So when Cubs fan and I first started talking in 2015, that was my first year writing the NFL Edge. But the NFL Edge at that point was a light enough article. I think it was usually about 400 words per game. And now it's more like 1,500 to 1,800 words per game, sometimes over 2,000 words per game. And it was it was light enough on statistics that we were in, uh, Abby and I were in Asia for like six weeks that year. It was maybe like week four that we were flying back to the States. And I was I wrote up the NFL Edge on an overseas flight without Wi-Fi. I wasn't able to look up stats and I was still able to write the NFL Edge because enough of it was just like, hey, here's how these coaches like to coach. Here's how these teams interact. Point being, 
the NFL edge took significantly less time back then than it takes now. Back then it took maybe four or five hours, and now it takes well over 20 hours. And so um, back then it was like I had one article that I wrote that took about two or three hours, and I had the NFL edge that I wrote, and that was kind of my work for the week. I had my Friday night podcast with, with Adam and Jeff. There was no site maintenance stuff like what I have to do now. There was no site overview stuff of kind of like, you know, having other people writing for my site. Um, there was no business calls or, uh, you know, all these other things that now my work week is 50 hours before roster construction. There was no player grid back then, which takes about seven or eight hours to put together um, from top to bottom. And and so because of that, I spent so much time working on rosters and that was back when I would build 80 plus rosters a week by hand. And by by hand, I mean I would build them on the app. And I would only use one roster. And those 80 plus rosters, it was, you know, those first 30 or 40 were nowhere close to what I was going to end up with. But I was just messing around with different things, getting a sense for the slate. And then by like the 40th or 50th roster, I started getting down closer to what my final build was going to look like and started pushing pieces around and trying different things and inevitably my one roster would out, I would I would drop my other rosters into the the quarter whatever it was called the 25 cent <clears throat> contest on DraftKings so that I could track how those rosters did and you know probably 14 weeks out of 17 my one roster would beat all but four or five of my other 80 rosters and that was, like I said, when Cubs fan and I first started talking and he was always asking me like, you, like I'm putting in 150 rosters and your one roster is beating all but like five of mine. How are you doing that? And it was, for me, it was a thing of like having enough time to get familiar enough with the slate that I could feel really confident in what the one best roster was. Now, Back then, people weren't building as smart as they're building now. I don't think that now, with a full week, I could build uh, a one roster consistently that would beat most of Cubs fans' rosters because uh, we've all evolved as DFS players, and this, the you know angles he's able to play now are sharper than what anybody was playing back then. But the point is, just with a lot of time, I felt like I could always get down to one really good roster. As I've had less time my one roster has far less certainty on it as far as like I'm, I'm far less confident in it. And then it, it's tended to perform far less well than it used to perform. And that was part of the reason why I switched to mini multi-entry was because with less time, I'm able to then say, okay, here's my player pool and let me build really intelligently from this player pool. If I had more time, my player pool might get smaller and smaller and smaller until it was down to a point where I was saying, okay, I'm going to put in three rosters. Like that's what I feel. That's all I feel I need here is three rosters because my pool is so tight. So that's something that uh, is not on this sheet of questions. Extra question to get to, which increases the chances that we don't get to all of these. But uh, extra question to get to, but I wanted to cover that because those types of things are important to think about as well as far as why you're playing the way you're playing, how you're playing the way you're playing, so on and so forth. Uh, next question, and we've kind of covered this, but it's, uh, is single entry still viable? This was um, somebody who hit on the 
Steelers last week. Steelers defense at low ownership um, and hit on Tannehill and A.J. Brown, but missed on a lot of other pieces. Is single entry still viable? Said better. How do I know if I am viable in single entry? Variance is higher and the sample size is so much smaller. How do I know if I'm being plus EV? What caused you to move to mini multi-entry? Finally, this is a next year or off-season idea, but could you walk us through your thought process of a game breakdown? Another area where I'd like to see a deep dive. Could you walk us through Game Pass and how you break down film? I could listen to game theory stuff for hours and hours. Fortunately for you, I could talk about game theory stuff for hours and hours, uh, it seems. And yeah, I, I like those ideas for the off-season. I'm sure that Aaron has already collected those and set those aside um, for things that we can do for next year. How to know if you are a viable single-entry player. Yeah, the there's less... The, it takes a lot longer because, again, you're only building 17 rosters a year. So I covered the reason why I, I moved to mini-multi-entry was just because I had less time. Um, and I didn't like... I didn't like the feel like when I did single entry and I could cash in tournaments seven, eight, nine out of 17 rosters, that was a great feeling. If I could feel upset the weeks when I didn't cash, that was a great feeling. If I was going single entry and cashing four times per season, which is still above statistical pace, five times per season. I think I was hitting five times per season by the time I was like, all right, I'm scrapping single entry. And that's still above the pace. That's 30% of the time finishing in the top 20%. But who cares? Like you're trying to finish top 5% at least, top 2 or 3%. And that's kind of the um, the tricky part, right, is you want to finish top 5% consistently enough in single entry. And that's kind of one of the cool things about single entry is you don't have to finish in first place. You're still targeting first place. But those higher finishes, because you can cash more often in single entry, those higher finishes um, can still make your season if it's 6x or 8x or whatever it might be, 10x, to where you don't need a 100x weekend um, because you're kind of holding steady, you're holding your ground. I think that that's what you need to look at is, am I holding my ground when I'm not hitting that top 5% finish. And so optimally, at least once out of 17 weekends, you know, because one out of 20 is 5%. So optimally, one out of every 17 weekends, once per season, you're finishing top 5%. But uh, I would like to finish top 5% at least twice and, and optimally three times in a season. I would like to cash in single entry at least seven or eight times in a season. And if you can do that, that allows you to, you know, hit hit what I've talked about, what I talked about in 2018 a lot on the site and even before we started the site, and it allows you to hit what Hilo talks about now, which is this single entry or three entry max approach where you kind of hold your ground when you aren't getting those top finishes. Because, you know, you cash for double what you entered and then maybe the next week you miss and then the next week you cash and go 3x and then the next couple of weeks you miss. But 
you're kind of holding your ground and then you get that weekend that goes 10x and you know now you've boosted your bankroll and then you hold your ground for another five or six weeks and then you go 10x again and so yeah i would it it's harder because again you just have that one roster per weekend but i think that ultimately you're just kind of looking to see where you're finishing in the standings what you were getting right what you were getting wrong it's it's hard it's hard to play dfs when you haven't hit a really strong roster in a while and there's a psychological element that as soon as you hit you feel really strong like you feel like you feel so much confidence in your picks the next week and the next week and you're so much more willing to take some risks and so I think that sometimes it can be valuable just to shift up your play a little bit. Um, I used to do that in MLB. I would, you know, if I'd gone uh, a week and a half, two weeks without doing anything in tournaments, I would maybe shift up and, and enter a bunch of rosters or try something totally different. Um, so yeah, I mean, even, even like, I think you can play single entry, but if it's starting to get to a point where it's weighing on you to where you're like, is this even working? I would recommend mixing in some showdown play, mixing in some um, two-game slates or you know whatever else you can do to give yourself some extra opportunities to get some action and play. And then that can kind of give you an opportunity to work on some different things, try some different things, um, and hopefully like lock in your confidence to a point where you have one of these weeks in single entry where... You feel really confident pulling the trigger on plays that would typically be difficult to pull the trigger on. You know, the Chris Ivory type plays, the uh, Lions-Bears stack type plays, the um, Sammy Watkins in the bad matchup type plays. Because if you can get to a point where you can pull the trigger on those, you get to a point where you can win these single entry tournaments. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that doesn't really give you, I didn't get too deep there or provide too much help, but, um, it's a tough, it's like a, that's a tough topic. It's like, how do you know when you're playing single entry, if you're doing things right? We talk a lot about assessing the process and kind of lay out all the elements there. And that's really the best you can do there is, is keep paying attention to how you're putting your builds together, why you put them together a certain way and what you think about that on Monday in retrospect and, keep improving because that's ultimately what you have to do in single entry is be able to see the big picture and be able to see whether or not your play is or isn't sharp, you know, to be able to step away and see that. And if you're not being able to do that, then I think that just getting a little bit of extra play in in action to be able to see things from new angles, kind of give yourself extra opportunities to hit can be pretty valuable as well. Uh, this question is from K Singh at K Singh 1212. Do you feel a need to use three questions here? Do you feel a need to use players from late games, even though they look like lower scoring games? No, not at all. Uh, recommend game stack the two highest implied total games? Not necessarily. Again, it's I think it's such a trap that people just auto stack the highest total games. Um, we talk about that a lot. Obviously, all the nuances that we're looking for in games and all the edges that we're looking for, and even the fact that oftentimes just taking the second or third highest total game you know, it's one or two points below the one everybody's on, and then you get much lower ownership. And so uh, every game is different. Every game environment is different. You have to take it one at a time. Uh, last question was any midweek feelings on Pittsburgh, Tennessee, and Bengals, Browns. 
Um, obviously, all of that is in the NFL edge, but yeah, I like the Bengals passing attack quite a bit this week. I'll definitely have some exposure there. Next question comes from True Blue Drew. Unfortunately, I don't have a great answer here, but he said, could you elaborate on some of the stats that pop up when I click on a player in the edge write-up? How are things like supporting cast efficiency, target quality rating, etc., best applied to roster construction? So I don't actually use the player cards myself for any of my research or preparation or roster construction, but um, all of that is through Roto Underworld, which has an incredible database of stats and advanced stats and information. And um, I believe that they also have breakdowns of what each of these stats mean and how best to use those stats. So I would check out Roto Underworld. I would imagine that's rotounderworld.com, but I could be wrong on that. So just Google Roto Underworld and uh, you should be able to find some information there. And they have a lot of cool stuff on their site. I think some of it's membership only, but I think a lot of it's available to the public as well. All right, we've got 13 questions left. It often takes about 30 seconds just to read the questions. So I'm going to try to rapid fire these and I apologize for not getting as in-depth as I would love to get, but uh, we're pushing 5.30 in the morning. William's gonna be waking up soon. I need to be going to bed soon in order to be able to build rosters this week. So. Uh, We're going to rapid fire these and uh, wrap this week up, hopefully in the next 20, 25 minutes. Uh, Pruitt DJ asked, on weeks with lots of games with shootout potential, what is the optimum three max approach? Is it to put a stake in the ground and pick the game you see the most potential in, offensive concentration, etc., and stack it three ways or stack three games across different rosters? Anytime that I'm building three max, I want to have some sort of central core to those rosters because otherwise you're just throwing 27 random players out there and hoping that something lines up correctly. If you're going to broaden your pool that wide, you might as well you know, go with a, a larger entry type of setup. If you're going three max, you know, anywhere from like, 14 to 18 players. That's not a hard and fast rule, but I would say generally speaking, you're going to have anywhere from 14 to 18 players across those builds. And so it doesn't have to be, you know, the same stack in three spots. It could be, like I said this week, you know, if you really like all the running backs, you could say, but basically what I want to do is I want to give myself something that if it goes right, it's helping all my rosters. So even with my mini multi-entry, Sometimes I'll have certain player pairings that have nothing to do with one another. But like, let's say that I'm going to have uh, 10 Kareem Hunt rosters and four Latavius Murray rosters this week. I might decide that all four of my Latavius Murray rosters are going on Kareem Hunt rosters. Just specifically to say like, uh, so Murray's a higher risk play. I would still have my six Kareem Hunt rosters that didn't have Latavius Murray in this example. And so if Latavius Murray bombs, uh, I would you know still have plenty of opportunities to hit with Hunt in other spots. But that, that way, if Latavius Murray hits and I really like Kareem Hunt, then I end up with like all my Latavius Murray rosters are in good shape. I'm taking on a little bit more risk by rostering Latavius. 
but I'm going to pair him with this one guy who I really like kind of across the board. And those two players have nothing to do with one another. They don't correlate in any way, but it just gives me a chance to say, okay, here's some rosters where if, if these guys hit, they're hitting across every place where I have Latavius and now I have only seven spots left to get right on those rosters. And so in one way or another, you want to kind of tighten up the things that you need to go right. There's other spots, you know, to give a different example, if, if I'm going to have Hunt on 10 rosters, half, half of 19 rosters, basically, and I'm going to have Latavius on four, I might instead say, okay, I've got Latavius on four, so two of them are going to go on Hunt rosters, two of them are going to go off of Hunt rosters. But then there might be a different player that I that I say, okay, everywhere where I have him, I'm going to have him with Hunt. Or another player where I say, maybe I have five of him and I'm only going to have one with Hunt and four without, so that it's like, okay, if things work out, so this player hits and Hunt disappoints, these rosters are doing really well. Hunt's going to be popular, and so a bunch of rosters will get hurt. And so, you know, even places where things don't correlate, I want to kind of just figure out how I'm piecing them together on my rosters so that I'm giving myself my best shots at first place. And so, yeah, three entry max, you don't necessarily have to take one stack and stack it across three spots. You can do that, and then you can do other things in other spots. Or you could take three completely different stacks, but have something else that's on all of your rosters. Um, You certainly don't want to just have three completely uh, unconnected rosters because um, that's kind of how the field is playing. And it's one of our edges on the field is that we can think about how to put together our our rosters as a block. But, um, But yeah, in putting together your rosters as a block, there's certainly uh, there's certainly an element of like you can approach it different ways, but you want your rosters to connect one way or another. Uh, this question is from Carry Out Cole, old friend Carry Out Cole. Congrats! Uh, after hitting my first big weeks of the season, is it more plus EV to keep playing the same one to, one to three dollar games I was playing before, even though they have more total entries? Or would it be more plus EV to move up in entry fees knowing the contests are smaller, but they're filled with more pros? It really doesn't matter about like the, the filled with more pros and so on and so forth. So much as it matters what your mindset is and how your mindset changes based on buy-in level. I never consider it to be a bad idea to just stay at the same buy-in level throughout the season if you bump up, you just have to make sure that you're still playing with the exact same approach, that you're not looking at things any differently. So if you were playing the $1 to $3 and you were able to say with your entries, you know what, if I lose these, that's okay because I'm targeting upside, I'm targeting first place, uh, that's fine. But we see it when like people hit on, this is an ext- more extreme example, but let's say people are playing $150 buy-ins, they hit, and now they're playing in the their first time in the 1K tournament. Well, a lot of times they play to not lose. They turn into Adam Gase or John Fox in that tournament and they play to not lose. And what ends up happening is they end up bubbling or they end up losing because they're playing too conservatively. They're playing things too safely. And so you just have to make sure that whatever you're putting in play on a given weekend, you're willing to lose it because if you're not, then you're going to play too tight, too conservatively. So you can go up in in buy-in levels. There's a point where you want to be going up in buy-in levels. That's part of the reason we play DFS, is to keep being able to play at higher levels. 
And you certainly can't be scared off by, you know, tougher competition. You just say, fine, like, I feel like I'm building great rosters. And if you're taking everything that you're learning on OWS and you're building rosters that way, you can compete with any of the the DFS players out there. There's no, like, special thing that they have going for them. As far as, like, there's nothing that they know about these teams and players that you don't know. And there's nothing that they understand about roster construction or understand about what it takes to get to first place that you don't understand. The difficult thing is putting it into action, finding your unique approach, putting it into action, blending it all together, um, and kind of coming up with that consistency. So if you feel like you can go up buy-in levels and still be consistent and not not play too conservatively, then I certainly... like encourage you and even challenge you to do it. But if you, there's, there's nothing wrong. I've done it so many times where I've started to play in a tournament. There's been several times this year, at least two times this year already where um, I've been like, okay, you know, I'm going to hop into the 1500 or the 3k tournament with one entry because I like this week. And then as I start kind of trying to narrow down that down, narrow down that one roster, I start realizing that I'm like tightening up too much in my play and I just said okay I'm not I'm not playing it this week like I don't I don't have it this week. And so yeah, if you bump up buy-in levels and then as you're building for it, you recognize like okay, I'm I'm getting too tight with it. Then then just back off and play the tournaments you were playing before. You know, you're not trying to prove anything to anybody and that's important to remember. You're trying to make money. And on the flip side, once you back off and you say, okay, I'm going to play the, the one and three this week, there's this trap where you start to feel strong again, and then you want to put that roster in whatever the next buy-in level is that you were looking at. Don't. You have to be disciplined. Like Once you hit that state where you're like, okay, this isn't the week, and you step back, don't try to push forward again. It's going to screw up your mindset a ton, and um, you know the... If you have a good weekend, if you back off and then have a good weekend in the lower dollar tournaments, that's still a good thing. You're proving to yourself that it's repeatable. You're increasing your confidence. You're increasing you know, the information that you have in your back pocket from your own personal experience, from what you've seen work, from what you've seen not work. Uh, this is a long game. We're, we're looking at this from a long-term perspective of growing our worth through DFS over time. And so... Um, you know, one weekend where you just, where you're tightening up your play until you decide not to go up that buy-in level, and then you hit at the lower buy-in level, that's not a bad thing. In fact, you probably wouldn't have hit at that higher buy-in level because your play would have changed. And so, uh, yeah, just pay attention to your psyche in all of this because um, uh, that's the big thing. Like, you know, you're not competing against anybody else but yourself. You're just trying to improve as a player, grow that bankroll, uh, build great rosters. And so whatever whatever contests you feel like you can do that in in a given week, um, fire away at it. But if, if you lose on a weekend and you feel upset or kind of confident shot, then that means that you were putting too much pressure on that one weekend. And part of that can be putting too much bankroll behind one weekend. You should always be able to be willing to lose what you're putting in in a given weekend, in a given set of tournaments, because otherwise you're not going to win money. 
if you're not willing to lose that money, you can't take the, uh, the risks that you need to be taking in order to win money. Next question is from at get bent kid, old friend at get bent kid. Uh, can you talk about going from single entry to three max? Why is it better? And should one of these lineups be a pure hedge or should they all have a shot to cash while still working together? Uh, example would be having the same player block, but mixing in different one-offs. I don't think that it it is necessarily better. It's a thing of, you know, you're giving yourself you're giving yourself more opportunities. You're able to cut down on the variance a little bit more, but it's a player-by-player player thing. You know, for years, I preferred single entry. Um, I didn't even consider three-entry max. And um, there are a lot of people who place three-entry and will never go above that or consider going above that. Uh, Graham Barfield is is single-entry only. He doesn't play even three-entry. And so... Yeah, it's different for different players. I think that there's certainly benefits to going up. And I think that one of the benefits is that we, as a community, are going... I mean, I can't... Like, the stuff that people are talking about in OWS Collective and on Discord is so much sharper than even, like, what touts are talking about on on some other sites. Like, we have a very sharp community of, of DFS players in terms of how people are looking to build and how they're targeting first place. And so there is an advantage in playing three entry max as an OWS subscriber. There is an advantage to mini multi-entering or even mass multi-entering as a DFS subscriber, as an OWS subscriber, because you have a better handle on how to put all those pieces together than the field has. And so the more rosters you get, the more, you're competing against people who are being scattershot with their rosters or who are entering one roster into like a large field tournament. Um, and the more you're able to take advantage of the things that you know. So the things that you know, talking about hedging and all that, uh, I don't think that there's a hard and fast rule. Like this one roster is a hedge and, you know, and these other rosters are going to bet on things this way. I think it's like, Obviously, it's week by week, but yeah, it's it's in some way the rosters are going to be different. So not necessarily with a hedge. There might be a week where, uh, let me think of a good example here. Well, why don't we take the Vikings from last week? There might be a week where you say, um, my firm bet is on the Vikings offense, but I don't know exactly how it will hit. And so I'm going to have, um, you know, these three Vikings pieces played in different ways. Or maybe Thielen on one, Madison on one, Jefferson on on one. And then you know you're actually expecting that two of those rosters are going to do really well from those Vikings pieces, and one of them is going to do not as well. And you know that if two of them do poorly, one of them is going to do really well. That's a good thing. That's a good way to approach it. But you could then also mix and match that like last week. You could have said, okay, but I'm going to have Tannehill and A.J. Brown on all the rosters. If you get it wrong, all three rosters are in bad shape. But if you get it right, it's that that Ricky D approach. If you get it right, you just need one weekend each year. You don't need cash every weekend. And so if you say, okay, yeah, but my style is I'm going to try to get what I what I want to get right. I'm going to try to get it right. And I might be wrong five, six weekends, but the weekend when I'm right, every roster that has these pieces that I'm betting heavily on are going to hit. Another example, this week I talked in the player grid about liking Matt Ryan, liking Matt Ryan plus Julio plus Ridley, and 
talking about I might, you know, three of my 19 rosters go Matt Ryan plus Julio on one, Matt Ryan plus Ridley on one, Matt Ryan plus Julio plus Ridley on one. So that's another way that you could do three entry max. It's a, it's a strong bet on the Falcons' passing attack. There's a chance that all three rosters could end up cashing. Like if, if Ryan, if the Ryan plus Julio plus Ridley stack hits, then the Ryan plus Julio and the Ryan plus Ridley stack are also going to be hitting. If the Ryan plus Ridley plus Julio stack misses, you're still probably getting the Ryan plus Julio or the Ryan plus Ridley doing really well. And so, yeah, every situation is just a little bit different. And it's not necessarily about hedging. It's about, I think, I would say identifying your player pool and, you know, getting it as tight as you can get it, finding the spots that you really like, and then just figuring out what's your best way to give yourself a shot at first place with these three rosters. And that might some weeks that might mean a setup where you're very blatantly saying one of these three rosters is going to get wrecked. One of these three rosters is probably not going to do well, but that means that the other two are doing well, like the Vikings setup. And in other weeks, it might be something like that Falcon setup where it's like, hey, there's a good shot that all three of these rosters do well. And so, um, yeah, I think, you know, once you find your player pool, once you find your player pool, then you have a sense of what's available on the slate. And once you have a sense of what's available on the slate, you can figure out what's kind of the best way to piece together that block of three rosters from there in order to give yourself the best shot at first place. Uh, At Riser51 said, I never seem to be able to nail down a repetitive process. If you could break down a process into five parts, what would they be and in what order? For any of you who are wondering this and have some disposable income or have disposable edge points, which by the way, you guys, if any of you are still listening to this an hour and 20 minutes in, um, if you play season-long fantasy, like chunks of the NFL edge are available to OWS free. You probably have season-long friends who don't play DFS, who would still find OWS really helpful. Uh, I actually have several friends who I either set up with a free account or uh, like the the dev guy on our site who does all like the back end stuff. He doesn't play DFS, but he plays season long. And they all use the NFL edge and other features on the site for their season long play. Point being, you probably have friends who might not even play DFS who would love an OWS free account and get use out of it. And by getting them into OWS free, you get edge points and you can buy courses. Anyhow, uh, if you are interested in learning more about this, there is the NFL DFS process course where I go through the five steps in order. Uh, I also touch on them pretty deeply and heavily in the masterclass. Um, as always, these lessons, like the first few lessons of every course in the marketplace are free. So also, if you're wanting to learn and not spend money, that's a great way to do that. But again, uh, get yourself some edge points because it like it happens immediately. As soon as your friend signs up for OWS free, your edge points go up, which is pretty cool. And then you can buy actual courses. Uh, repetitive process for me, it is five steps are collect, sketch, sketch, 
blueprint, build, and carve. So in relation to DFS, collect would be collecting as much information as you can. So that might be reading the NFL Edge, um, taking your notes. Sketch might be the next step of taking those notes and kind of thinking through each game yourself and hitting on a few of the thoughts that you're seeing and just your like initial no pressure pass through on what you see on each spot on the slate. Build would be where you kind of start taking those thoughts and forming them into an actual player pool with a general sense of how you might want to allocate your exposures, uh, whether it's single entry or three entry or mini multi-entry or whatever it might be. Blueprint would be where you start taking that and turning it into like an actual action plan. And then uh, carve would be where you start trying to tighten it up and just, you know, get rid of any fluff, get rid of any of the pieces that you're holding on to because you're scared to miss out on them. Get, get like narrowed down to the pieces that are your pieces, the pieces that even if you're wrong on them, you think they give you a shot at first place and you're going to play this certain way and you're going to start playing this certain way consistently, targeting upside. Um, and you don't have to come up with your own approach. If you don't, you know, you can, you know how many coaches pattern their offense off of what Kyle Shanahan does? You know, like if, if you're not finding something that works for you, listen to all the stuff that I say about how I build and build that way. And then, you know, from there branch out into the unique things that, um, kind of work for you that are, that are different from the way that I do things. But, um, yeah, and that's the carve stage. So for me, my NFL week, uh, collect is all of my research for the NFL edge, all of my reading, all of my film watching sketch is my writing of the NFL edge. And that's how I kind of sketch out my, my thoughts on each game blueprint is where I go through the NFL edge, take all my notes, uh, put them into all the categories for the player grid, figure out what my player pool is, write up the player grid. That's all my blueprint step. Build is where I take everything from the player grid and go through all the games again uh, and start kind of mapping out my actual exposures and getting a sense of like, I've, I've mentioned, you know, I do it all on paper and I, I'll have my 19 builds and I kind of start figuring out what my core foundational plays are. And so that blueprint would be, um, or sorry, that build would be taking all the blueprint stuff, getting that player pool set, getting my exposure set, starting to build out like the first four or five pieces on these 19 builds on paper. And then carve would be that last step of figuring out, okay, what do I do from here to get to first place? Um, and then, you know, any other steps that come in along the way. So th those are my five steps is how I label them. I use those sort of for everything, whether it's something that we're building for OWS or something that I'm doing with my writing or uh, my DFS play. So again, collect, sketch, blueprint, build, and carve. Next question is from Lex Moralia. I don't know who this guy is. Uh, he said, are you a robot? Is that how you work on no sleep? What do you feel is the most common mistake people make in turning their research and knowledge into lineups? Is that book list you made still somewhere on the site? What should I do with the million I win this upcoming Sunday? That's a lot of questions uh, for one question. But am I a robot? No, I've never needed that much sleep when I was in 
preschool, my parents had to convince the preschool teacher that I didn't have to nap because uh, there was nap time at preschool and all the other kids would actually fall asleep. And I never would. And I guess the teacher was pretty adamant about me falling asleep. And finally, my parents were like, look, he's not going to fall asleep. Um, but why don't you like let him maybe lay on his mat and do a quiet activity or something? Um, and then uh, William's kind of the same way. Abby gets the, the migraines that are brought on by stress or lack of sleep. And so she actually needs more sleep than William at this point. Uh, he gets like nine hours a night and Abby gets at least nine and a half. So uh, not a robot. How do I work on no sleep? Um, it's, it's not as fun or as easy as it used to be, but it's been a long time of not sleeping as much as I should and staying up at night far more often than I should. What do you feel is the most common mistake people make in turning their research and knowledge into lineups? I think it's it's embracing it's embracing like one stat or one set of stats too deeply and it's relying too heavily on the knowledge through the numbers. The smarter you get at this stuff, the harder it can be to play DFS at a high level. So like Lex, you specifically I would encourage you to pay attention to like the interplay between the way that somebody like Scott approaches things and the way that somebody like Cubs fan approaches things, right? Well, who's the person who's like making the, the most money in DFS of like anyone? It's Cubs fan because in a way it's because he knows the least and he's the most willing to just be like, like when, when all the smart people are telling him something's a bad play, he can just be like, cool, like, that's fine. I'm going to go make a bunch of money with this not smart play. And so uh, I think that, uh, you know, for like a typical researcher, for somebody like doing their own research around their work or whatever, I think that people tend to like, they'll find a stat. So this is kind of for everybody. You'll find a stat and then you kind of hold onto it really tightly. And I would, I would do that even when I first started writing because you're just first time like diving deep into everything. Um, Lex, you specifically, and anybody listening who's kind of like Lex that has a good feel for for everything across the league, right? Because you're having to dive into this week in and week out. Um, I would say it's relying on the numbers and not getting back to the point of of that three-dimensional football game on the field. So it's like this, like... Lex, the way that you can see exactly what the Saints are going to do and the way a Saints game is going to play out because you know the Saints so well. But then if you get to other teams, and I don't, I'm not saying this for you specifically, but it would be easy to then get to other teams and see those teams more through the lens of like all the numbers that you're seeing every week. And ultimately you want to be able to see all the teams the way that you can see like your own team as far as, okay, this is what this coach wants to do. This is how these players are used. This is how these players interact with one another. And so that's kind of like layering in on top of the research. In fact, I, uh, I won't say publicly who this uh, researcher is, but there's a researcher who like knows all the numbers and player metrics so well that they'll never be great at DFS because they aren't able to see the game on the field the way that they need to be able to see 
the game on the field. And so um, on top of like all the numbers, I think that anybody who's doing a lot of research should also aim to read beat writer articles, should also aim to watch games, should also aim, you know, like Scott talks about watching all those coaching press conferences. That's such a valuable thing for somebody like Scott, who's so deep in the numbers to do, because if you can pair the numbers with an understanding of the coaches, an understanding of the players, like an understanding of of who these guys are in the locker room. Like, I can't tell you uh, how much time I've spent watching random stuff. Like, uh, a couple of years ago, there was a Vikings player who would do a weekly feature where he, like, would record stuff on his, probably on his phone in the locker room and, like, do question and answer sessions that he thought were funny and post, like, you know, he had his channel on YouTube that was getting, I don't know, I'm guessing, like, 10,000, 14,000 views a week from Vikings fans of him going around and asking like different Vikings players, which teammate would you not let date your sister? You know, like, but just watching that and seeing, being able to see like, okay, who is Stefan Diggs? Who is Adam Thielen? Like, how do these guys interact with one another? What's this team like? What's the vibe with this team? Um, You know, same thing like the Chargers right now or the last couple of years at least they did like a whole inside the chargers feature i think they're just trying to get fans in la but nobody's watching it like it's got no views but they would follow players home like you know you get to see uh rochelle rochelle at home you get to see hunter henry at home you know and like get to know these players on like a different level those types of things honestly help balance against the the numbers. And so I think for anybody doing research, it's valuable to also get into the human side of things, whether it's watching interviews, watching press conferences, uh, reading about these players, checking out their Twitter feeds. Like, who is Tyron Matthew as a person? Go to his Twitter feed. Like, this dude is like Michael Jordan in the way that he like focuses and cares and prepares and how in, intense he is about all of this. Uh, who is Buddha Baker as a, as a person, as a player? Like, why does he play the way that he plays? Understanding these things can help quite a bit because you can more clearly visualize how a game is likely to play out. And that's really what we want to get to. Um, there was like a, for me, my DFS play went from like, I was really good when, I was doing a lot less research and then got better as I was doing more research. And then as I was doing more and more research, got worse and then had to like pull back up to where I had been before by like, you know, getting back into like, okay, now I do all this research for work. So how do I balance that by also staying as 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 deep as I need to be in like how this game is going to play out on the field? Because if you have the weaponry of all the knowledge, all the stats, and you can also get into that human side and visualize how the game will play out on the field, then you have a huge advantage. Like you have an advantage over the people who are able to see that without doing all the research. Um, But if you're just on like the research portion, then you're putting yourself at a disadvantage. And so you do have to be able to balance the two and be able to see this as a a game that will play out on the field. Uh, The book list is... I gotta be on the site somewhere. I'll try to dig that up. Um, and uh, with the million that you win, you should quit your uh, your job and just do OWS full time. Uh, that's the plan. Um, okay, so I, I had seen this question. So this is from Tenacious D. Uh, 
he said, could you elaborate on a statement from earlier this season that you don't have time to build for three max, um, even though you've been doing your mini multi-entry approach? I've always assumed more lineups built by hand equals more time spent. So we covered that already. Uh, BSAAS25 said, I recently switched to main slate tourney over cash. When do you go with gut over research? Um, all the time. All the time if I am in a good groove as a DFS player. And all the time if I'm able to back up that gut with like, you know, so it, it, it ties into a lot of what Sonic talks about which obviously Sonic has a very unique approach with the meditation and then like seeing what subconscious triggers pop for him. But I think most DFS players, I don't, I don't actually know whatever happened to Sahil Sood, um, who was originally Max Dallary and where he went in the DFS industry. But uh, he, like I even had a conversation with him one time that uh, I, don't, I don't know the guy real well, but the, the way that the conversation went it implied to me that uh, he very much like listens to gut to try to understand, would listen to gut to try to kind of discern which plays he was on. And I've always been that way as well. But it's, you know, you start to notice like certain gut triggers, but it is all like, it's all information that you put in. It's all information that you've processed already. And so there's just an element of saying like, what I always watch for is if I'm trying to come up with the reasons why a player's not good, and if I don't want a player on my roster, when there's plenty of ways to spin the research that they're a strong player, that's probably the type of player that I need to put on my roster. If, on the other hand, I keep like auto-forcing a guy onto my roster, the moment I say, I just don't see a way this player fails. There's no way this player fails. I said it a few weeks ago with uh, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, and it was, um, I think it was the game that ended up off the main slate. I don't think I ended up getting sunk by it, but uh, or maybe it was on the main slate. And I and I was like, I, I was going to go heavy on, I guess it was on the main slate. I, I don't remember what game it was. I apologize, but I was going to go heavy on Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, and I just kept putting him on on my rosters. And I ended up going a little bit lighter on him than I otherwise would have because I started being like, I don't even see, I don't see how he has a bad game. And it was like, I don't see how, I don't see how Patrick Mahomes is a better play than him. And then you realize, well, if you get to that point, you're probably overlooking things and you're like forcing this play. And so I ended up scaling back my Clyde Edwards-Hilaire exposure, not based on research, but just based on the fact that it was like, I am I am way too high on this play without any reason to be like this high on this play. I'm like wanting to play this play. And there's always like, it didn't feel good to put Justin Jefferson on, our, on your roster last week. You could spin the research to say this is a good play. So maybe that means nothing. Maybe that means everything. But it's it's like there's an element of trying to pay attention to what is leading to your good roster? And I think that that's really what it's all about is trying to pay attention to what leads you to your good rosters and recognizing that recognizing that creativity is such a big part of DFS play. And so 
there's a point, like for me, I try to turn off from the research by Saturday night when I'm building. And there are typically a few final things I need to look up to make sure I'm not just like overlooking something. But I'm not sitting there on my computer looking at stats while I'm building. I'm like trying to relax and build my rosters. And so there have been, I would say like 95% of the time, that this has happened, that I've had a roster that I finished and it was just like, it wasn't a roster that I ever would have built being logical, but I finished and it was just like, well, I know this one's going to do well. Like, I don't know how well, but I know this one's going to do well. Like 95% of the time that that happens, it ends up being right. And I don't know if that's just because like you're being creative with the roster and you can see when you finish, that's like a creative, well-built roster. Um, or if it's like subconscious that's pulling some deep research that you forgot that you knew, but you know, like there's a side that's not the, not the research. It's not the logic. It's the creative side of building. And when you build one of those creative rosters, you you kind of know that it's a good roster. And again, it doesn't mean that it's going to hit, but it, it means that those types of rosters are going to hit. So when Cubs fan talks about building rosters, um, you know, at all different times of day, in different settings, to kind of build in different moods, like that's part of what he's looking for is, is like tapping into the creativity of that moment, like what angles he's seeing things from at that moment. Because if you're building enough rosters that look like that, then you're going to make money. Uh, Sonic said this week in, in his Above the Field, I feel like I'm talking to like 20 people now because we're an hour and 40 minutes in. I don't know how many of you are still listening, but Sonic said this week in his um, Above the Field that he builds 50 of his 150 lineups by hand and the other 100 with the optimizer, with an optimizer. Uh, which, by the way, if, if any of you have not read his Tournament Mastermind course, it's incredible. I think the first two lessons are free. Maybe the first four lessons are free. Anyhow, uh, I strongly encourage you to do that and or use some edge points to buy it. Um, but Sonic was saying that his 50 that he builds by hand are usually his best lineups. Um, there's just like that element of being able to creatively build a roster and take some risks. Like that's why I encourage you, and I can't say it enough, and I know that messaging is important sometimes, there's certain things you have to hear over and over again before you do them, but you've heard me say it like 50 times, build a lot of rosters. It was even pinned uh, on my Twitter account for like eight months, the, the poll of like, how many rosters do you build per week? And like 70% of people said like one to five rosters per week. Like you have to build more rosters than that in a week, even if you're playing single entry. Like I said, I used to build 80 plus rosters to get to one roster you have to build rosters because that allows you to play around with different things. It allows you to say, here's a roster that I'm not building to enter into a contest. So you go into the DraftKings app or the DraftKings site and you click, not lobby, but click create a lineup. And so it's just a lineup that gets saved to no contest and just say, okay, I'm going to you know, one of the things I talked about last year that really helped me as I was developing my mini multi-entry play was I started going game by game and forcing myself to build one stack from each game. 
Sonic talked about the same thing in his end around article this week. Um, that his hand built lineups, that's what he's doing. He's going game by game and building a few stacks from each game. So if you do that, even if you're going to play single entry, that forces you to reorient your mind and see all the games on the slate, forces you, you to see all the angles and to take some risks that aren't actual risks because you're not building for a tournament. You're not going to enter this in a contest. You're not you know, having that pressure as you build. You're able to kind of expand your ability to build good rosters. Um, you force yourself to see things from new angles, to approach things in new ways. Um, so yeah, that was deeper than I expected to get on that. But uh, I think it's really valuable to think about uh, just the creativity side of things, how you can get better as a DFS player, why you should be building rosters, how you should be building rosters, how you, how you can use that to improve, uh, so on and so forth. Um, how many questions do we have left? We have five questions left. And actually, I'm going to stop there. We're going to stop there this week, and I will get to these other ones next week. I'll put a bookmark here and... Um, We'll, we'll go ahead and not ask for questions this week on Twitter, which will ensure that we don't get uh, too many new ones in. And uh, we can catch up on these ones in week eight. Um, but yeah, an hour and 45 minutes is enough. And uh, I got excited about building rosters too. And I got to drink some water and William's going to be waking up any minute. So um, hour and 45 minutes it is. I'm going to get out of here. I will bookmark this and we'll get back to this next week. And thanks for hanging out, especially any of you who made it all the way to the end of this one. Um, Fun to hang out. As always, I'll see you on the site throughout the weekend, and I will see you at the top of the leaderboards this week.